don't know. I don't know. What the punk is really me trying to figure out the genre because it gets a bum rap. It's there are bands that I grew up with that I loved were pretty traditional, like the Sex Pistols, the Clash, the Ramones. I like television, but it goes way deeper than that. And stylistically, it goes way deeper than that. And then when you look at the actual origins of punk, Ground Zero really is 1964 with the Beatles, which led into garage rock, which is considered proto punk. It's the grandfather of punk music. So for me, I want to explore every avenue of punk music. And I think the best way to do that is to go city by city and explore each city through interviews, asking regular people that grew up in those cities, hey, what were you listening to? What are some bands we haven't heard of? What was a band that released something that you were just like, man, that was really cool. That was really hot. That got me through high school. That got me through college, and it still sounds good. I'm 50 years old, and I'm still rocking out. I think that's the way to go for this show, and I want people to be open to send me things, to reach out to me and say, hey, Sully, did you consider this? Or, hey, Sully, you're full of shit. F-O-S, baby. You don't know what you're talking about, and correct me. I'm not a scholar on this. I'm not looking to be the end-all, be-all, know-it-all guy. I want to learn something new with every episode, and I want to make sure that if anyone is listening, that they get the same thing I'm getting out of it. I'm not here preaching. I'm here listening, and I want to know different things. And you're a musician. I would love you to hear something when you're in the booth with me here at the artist space and say, hey, oh, that's really cool. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. What what do you think is different about this than what you would be hearing on a different show or on a different podcast? Or what what do you what have you missed in a podcast or a radio program that does talk about punk that you wish was there? Not playing songs that everybody knows, not referencing the the bands that everybody knows giving some street cred to the bands that disappeared for whatever reason, but also giving some street cred for bands that people thought disappeared, like Agnostic Front, 
New York City hardcore band still going and killing it. Yeah, 
Sex Pistols frontman Johnny Lydon just had an album out a few years ago. He's still doing it. There's something about being a journeyman for me and finding people that are authentic, finding artists that are authentic and being themselves. And I think that's the allure for me for punk music. And I want to find the music and the artists that were 110% authentic people. And that doesn't mean it sounds like the sound of punk is whatever you want it to be. It's for me, it's an attitude for me. It's somebody feeling civil unrest. Like in the UK, the punk movement is more political. The punk movement in the Lower East Side by CBGBs is a different thing. It's a completely, it was a bunch of young people trying out different things for their friends and they happened to go into CBGBs and Hilly was like, sure, Hilly Crystal was like, sure, I need some clients here. in the Bowery. I need some money. You guys can play here. Bring your friends like any other bar. How many people can you bring in? Uh, we'll bring in our friends Joey and Dee Dee and Richard Hell and Bl- Blondie, Deborah Harry and Chris Stein. They're going to come in and hang out and they'll buy some drinks, I think. And all of a sudden that starts, you know, that starts growing. But then that comes back to uh, Punk Magazine with Holstrom and uh, Legs McNeil publishing. And they, what they did was they actually did a fanzine about the Lower East Side and just about the CBGB scene that was only meant to be about that area, about a few bands. And it actually ended up becoming like the Bible for most of these groups in that area as far as exposing them to the world. When, when you talk about punk, most people think of it in a historical context of an era that happened and kind of ended or at least led into more commercial music um, with Nirvana being maybe that prototypical band that brought it from an underground thing into the mainstream. Where do you agree with that? Do you think that there's some truth in that? Like, where does that sit? And why is it worth talking about now, you know, CBGB in the 70s and 80s? Like, why, why is that important? Well, I think that, you know, and I wrestle with this too when people are like, oh, you sold out, right? Um, your fa- When you find a group, that, and in any genre, right, that's up and coming or an artist before anybody ever knew them, you feel like you discovered them and you were listening to them before anybody else. And I think that's true today also. And you see your friends say, hey, check this out. This is a really great song. Check this out. And someone's like, oh, that's a jam, man. Let's even listen to it. Yeah, totally rock it out. But then, like, you see 500 billion views. You're like, oh, whatever. Right? Now, and then the next thing that comes out is, like, super slick. But that's production. For me, if it's authentic to the artist and you want people to hear your music, I don't know if I want to think in terms of selling out or too mainstream because I don't think that Kurt Cobain was mainstream at all with a song like Rape Me.
I think is the best Nirvana album. I actually don't like Nevermind. I think In Utero is way better. I think the songwriting is off the chart and it feels so acoustic and it feels so punk and authentic to who Kurt was and what he believed. And there's just an energy off of it. Not that there isn't that energy on Nevermind, but I think that you can feel the confidence in the songwriting. Yes, I'm relieving now that you're leaving.
So I don't think there is any selling out, and I don't. And I used to think too, bands like Sum Forty One or Blink One Eighty Two, pop punk, skater punk, hardcore punk, early seventies punk, proto punk. All of it, all of it is worthwhile. All of it, if it's authentic to the people that are creating it, I'm okay with it. How do you judge that then? Whether it's authentic. Is that a listener by listener choice?
it's not market economics is what you're saying. It's separate from that. Well, no, actually. I think that there's always been economics attached to everything. The Velvet Underground had Andy Warhol in their corner. And Andy Warhol was looking for a band. Actually, I take that back. Andy Warhol's business partner said to Andy, I think that you should manage a band. That would be good publicity. So you were asking me about how do you determine if an artist is being authentic? I mean, I don't think think there's just one way, but I'm asking like when you say punk is about authenticity, right? How do you judge authenticity? And is that a single person saying, you know what, this feels authentic to me and is that valid? Or is it a market-based system where enough people are saying, yes, this is valid and this touches me in a certain way or is it historical context and we look back and only through the lens of history can we actually judge an artist and I, I, I don't I don't have an answer to that I'm just wondering where where you sit on that or how you feel about that concept well I think it's perfect that you brought that question up because uh, I think for me it's the, the lens of history how many bands did I start with that, oh, I'm going to do this for life, man. I'm going to do this for life. And by the time they're 25, they're, you know, working a day job, putting the suit on and not pursuing it anymore. Like, what happened? You just did from 15 to 25, and I thought you loved this. Oh, but, you know, I grew up, man. I grew up. I had to do something different. So here you go. Here, this is interesting. So, and this is a quote from Please Kill Me, The Uncensored Oral History of Punk by Legs McNeil and Jillian McCain. It's a great book. I'm just going to read this little quick paragraph, and I think it'll make sense. I got two, actually. One from Paul, and then one from Lou Reed. Andy Warhol didn't want to get into rock and roll. I wanted to get into rock and roll to make money. Andy didn't want to do it. He never would have thought of it. Even after I thought of it, I had to bludgeon him into doing it. I know that you want to think that Andy wanted to do this, and Andy wanted to do that. Everything was generated from Andy. If you knew the actual operation of what happened at the factory, you'd understand that Andy did nothing and expected everybody to do everything for him. So somebody wanted to pay Andy to go to a nightclub in Queens, and he was going to get paid to do it. I said, that doesn't make any sense, but it's money. So I said, I have a good idea. We'll go to the Queens nightclub, and they'll pay us, but the reason we'll go is because we'll manage a group that appears there. And that became the Velvet Underground. Now, they were already going, right? John Cale and Lou Reed were, were going at that point. So they, were, so they approached Lou Reed and those guys. And in the book, he says, this is really funny. They go to Lou and says, hey, we want to, and he wants to manage you. And Lou says, we don't have any amplifiers. And Paul says, that's okay, we'll take care of that. And then Lou says, we don't have anywhere to live. And Paul says, that's okay, Andy will take care of that. <laughs> and he says, but we don't have any money either. Ed says, that's okay. We're going to take care of that also. Janice said when she was just five years old, there was nothing happening at all. 
They didn't really like Lou's voice. They didn't think it was as marketable. So then they found Nico to come in and start singing with them. And at first it didn't go well. 
But then eventually it did. So here's a quick quote from Lou. Here you go. So there you go. There's, but this is also, if you think about it, this is patronism, right? Here, here's very much in the Renaissance tradition. I'm going to hire you to paint the Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo, and I'll pay you this much money, make it look cool. In the Renaissance, this art was created because somebody was paying the artist to do it. But look at the works of art we got out of it. So here, the Velvet Underground is being financed by the factory, Andy Warhol and Paul, and Paul Morrissey. And does that cheapen their art? And this is where I would think that if you're planning on, on trying to sell records for mass consumption, even though you're being funded, I have a problem with that. If you're being funded because I truly love your art and I'm not going to mess with it, but I'm going to back you up on it, I feel like that's authentic. So this quote's from Lou Reed. Andy made a point of trying to make sure that on our first album, the language remained intact. I think Andy was interested in shocking and giving people a jolt and not letting them talk us into making compromises. He said, oh, you've got to make sure you leave the dirty words in. He was adamant about that. He didn't want it to be cleaned up and because he was there, it wasn't. And as a consequence of that, we always knew what it was like to have our own way. Think of that. We always knew what it was like to have our own way.
And if you've seen, if you've listened to Lou Reed's music, not just the underground, but solo, the way he is, he's an asshole New Yorker who wants his own way. Fuck yeah. Because everybody from New York is an asshole New Yorker who wants their own way. Including me. Pedro lives out of the Wilshire Hotel. He looks out a window without glass. The walls are made of cardboard. Newspapers on his feet, and his father beats him because he's too tired to beg. He's got nine brothers and sisters. They're brought up on their knees. It's hard to run when a coat hanger beats you on the thighs. Pedro dreams of being older and killing the old man, but that's a slim chance. He's going to the boulevard. On the dirty boulevard, he's going out to the dirty boulevard. He's going down to the dirty boulevard. This room costs $2,000 a month. You can believe it, man, it's true. Somewhere a landlord's laughing till he wets his pants. 
No one dreams of being a doctor or a lawyer or anything. They dream of dealing on the dirty boulevard. Give me your hungry, your tired, your poor, I'll piss on them. That's what the statue of bigotry says. Your poor huddled masses, let's club them to death. And get it over with and just dump them on the boulevard. Get them out. On the dirty boulevard. Going out. To the dirty boulevard. They're going down. On the dirty boulevard. Going out. Outside it's a bright night. There's an opera at Lincoln Center. Movie stars arrive by limousine. The Klieg lights shoot up over the skyline of Manhattan, but the lights are out on the mean streets. A small kid stands by the Lincoln Tunnel. He's selling plastic roses for a buck. The traffic's backed up to 39th Street. The TV whores are calling the cops out for a suck. And back at the wheelchair, Pedro sits there dreaming. He's found a book on magic in a garbage can. He looks at the pictures and stares up at the cracked ceiling. At the count of three, he says, I hope I can disappear and fly, fly away from this dirty boulevard. I want to fly from the dirty boulevard. I want to fly from the dirty boulevard. I want to fly, 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 fly from the dirty boulevard. I want to fly away. I want to fly. Fly, fly away. I want to fly. Fly, fly away. Fly, fly, fly away. Fly, 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 but he still made the album that he wanted to make, and he had the support of Andy. You know, Andy didn't want to do it. Cred to Andy. He was like, no, do it the way you want to do it. Keep it in there. Make the music you want to make. And they did. Right, because there was a benefit to Andy as well. But he trusted the artist as well, and he didn't try to change it. And I think that's for me. So if it's a if a major label is in with with an artist changing it because they're worried about X, Y, and Z or, or dollars and cents to the point where they're changing the art dramatically, where it's no longer in the artist's original vision, then I have a problem with that. But we don't know that. So again, we're going to come right back to history will tell us. And I also think when something's authentic over time and you play it back and you realize it was just kind of like pop crap. Do you think that that happens with a lot of people? Like you started off by talking about reaching out to uh, reaching out to people in communities, people who just loved punk music in the '80s, and asking them what you should check out. Do you find, as I think I I find at this point, is often people are looking back at the music they listened to. Um, in my case, in the '90s, late '90s. And are almost disgusted with it because they're, the, the commercial market had gotten to a point where the number of emo bands that people flocked to concerts, you know, they don't listen to that anymore. 
there, there is a disconnect I find with my personal colleagues, friends that are about the same age where they actually are not interested in the music. They're almost embarrassed by the fact that they did listen to it and they don't like secretly still listen to it. They literally are like, I, I don't, I don't know why I listen to it. I really don't. Do you find that that is maybe different based on eras and how the industry was at those time periods or are there people in punk who were absolutely into punk and now would be like, yeah, I was just trying to be part of the crowd. I was just, it was the cool thing to do in New York. I actually, this is just stupid music. I just don't like it. I think that's true with any genre. I think that's true with, there's fans of metal and I love metal too. That just because they liked the scene or it was the cool thing at the time from 64 all the way through the Cold War, we're talking about civil unrest. We're talking about the Vietnam War. We're talking about England where people are, no one has jobs. Everyone's on the dole. In New York, we got garbage piled up high. It's crime. We got hookers. We got pickpockets. It smells like urine in half the city. And here comes the Ramones. Here comes television. Here come these bands out of that.
that have something to say. And it was more political in the UK. But even here, there were things to say about a disenfranchised youth and to express yourselves in something. And I think that that's something that when you talk about emo bands like Dashboard Confessional, it's boring singing about yourself all the time. I can only hear so many love songs. And I think that when you're young and something's new, I, and I've done that also, where I've listened to something like, oh, I think this is really good. But it was just different. It doesn't mean that it was good. It was good at the time because you just need to hear something a little bit different. What are some songs I never need to hear again? I know, Freebird, Stairway to Heaven. I don't need to hear I Want to Be Sedated by the Ramones ever again. It's been outplayed, overplayed, just stop playing it. They have way better songs. There's, I don't need to hear Anarchy in the UK ever again. Nobody needs to cover it again. No one's going to do a better version. Let's just move on from that. Let's kill those songs, right? You know how we, the disco where we smash all the records, right, in, in, uh, <laughs> in uh, Comiskey I Park? I don't remember. You weren't there. I wasn't there either. <laughs> but it's the same thing, right? It's, it's when things are, are overplayed, outplayed, but these bands are still around and they still had a, a breath of work that say something. I think that transcends because it's, it's, it's capturing a moment in history that was going on. And it's, it's that generation's commentary. I don't know if the emo bands did that. I think it was more bemoaning themselves as, Oh, I'm a teenager. Or, oh, I'm young and I don't understand myself. Well, guess what? Nobody understands himself. Jesus Christ, I'm 48. I still don't understand myself. I'm still trying to figure it out. Every day I'm trying to figure it out. So those bands didn't speak to me. Clash always spoke to me. Fugazi. You know, bands that were, were, were doing things, artists that have real thoughts, real opinions, and they're putting it down, recording it, performing it, not worried about what the audience is going to think. Just to leave it on 
Now, does that mean Blink-182 doesn't have some goddamn catchy songs? <laughs> no, because they're really good musicians, and writing a good pop song is really, really difficult. And, and really, what is pop punk? It's a smoothed-out guitar tone with friendlier lyrics. And I don't actually have a problem with that if that's what the band is about. So if they came up and were like, this is what we want to do, I'm on board. If they came out and they had a whole different slant and the record label's like, no, 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 you have to do this kind of music, and they kind of sold their soul, that's different. But again, you won't know that. But I think you do know that. I think over time, I think you listen to something and you're like, yeah, I don't think they're really into it. Because, and how you know they're not into it? They're not still doing it. So where do you think the place in music is for change to happen? Because I would argue that the best artists are the ones that do sound different now than they did 10 years ago. Otherwise, they're just playing off of the hits, the couple songs, the one song that they had, which is big enough, was marketed well enough, that had the lucky break to propel a career forward. So in my, in my feeling, I love when an artist comes out with an album that is very different from the previous one. Where does that historical change and authenticity well, I think where does that fit? Yeah, yeah, and, and I think that's a great question or comment. That real artists, regardless of what you're doing, the more you do it, the better you get at it. So you had punk bands that went out, i.e., The Clash, who became really great musicians, like really great musicians. Just, they were putting in the time. Yeah, and and the songwriting, and there was something to mm -hmm. say. Joe Strummer had had a mind that was just like yes. I'm plugged in right now. And he started late. He started like in his 20s, picking up my guitars, like, I'm going to do that. We can get into that in another another episode where we can focus a little bit more on The Clash. But here, here's a good punk band, right, from the 90s. Uh, refused. Bunch of albums, some following. They're breaking up. They know they're going to break up. And they go for a no-holds-barred, whatever-we-want punk album. And they entitle it The Shape of Punk to Come.
play off the jazz album, the shape of jazz to come, and they destroy it. It's, I consider it one of the greatest punk albums of all time. Because they went for it. And then when you watch license interviews, the lead singer on what they were doing, they were all stressed out with each other. They were burned out. Like, what are we doing? And, and their other albums are good. They're good punk albums. But it's, it's the... Right? Like, it's, it's what you would think it would sound like. But I think those albums were necessary to get to that album. And subsequently, they've released another album. They've, they're touring. They've, they're back. They weren't going to be, but they're back. But each album you can hear with the guitar playing the subtleties of what's going on.
We've got more coming right now. There's more coming. We're going to get going to get a little sort of a session going here. A bit of a session. A session that will So there should the be a session. natural progression for all artists in all genres. If you're going to keep making the same album over and over again, I don't see what the point is. As an artist myself, I want to I always want to push the envelope, don't you? Yeah. Absolutely. And I understand like I don't want to alienate my fan base, but if you're a real punk, your attitude should be like fuck my fan base. I'm I'm writing for me, and if you happen to like it, that's great. If I'm saying something that speaks to you, that's great. And I think a good person to to talk about that or to focus on would be the Talking Heads and David mm-hmm. Byrne, who went like a com- complete punk, shifted more into the, I mean, and the writing just became amazing with the Talking Heads or a songwriting itself, right? Mm-hmm. But they're considered a punk band as they started. But David Byrne broke up the Talking Heads and started doing Calypso music. It was more challenging. When you feel like you've done it all and you want to say it in a, you want a new challenge, that's what you're looking for. And as listeners, if we truly, truly support an artist and we say, hey, I like this, this artist, whether they're punk or whatever they're doing, if we really support them, we want to see them change because they will challenge us on how we hear things, see things, and think about things. And I, don't, and I think that, for me, is a punk artist. Someone's willing to take those chances and not to boil it down to a sound.
Twist. Twist it, turn it, bang it, burn it. Bake it, take it, swirl it, bake it. Warm it, wake it, twist it, make it. Shake it, smoke it, stroke it, choke it. Show it, blow it, dirty, show it. Dance around it, sure we'll grow it. Tell it, tell it, sell it, tell it. Mess it up and jingle bell it.